still a community. And everyone benefits by bands and labels and distributors and so on succeeding. To me, there's no, there's no such thing as competition, except for maybe Amazon. That was a clip from today's guest, Adam Lentz. Over the past 20 years, Adam has mapped out America by record stores, purchasing and working A&R at one of America's most iconic record labels, Revelation Records. He's also a graduate of Cal State Fullerton with a degree in geography. Uh, Adam is someone I've known for a really long time, and I both like on a personal level and have a huge amount of respect for his professional approach and the way that it just like engages with life. He's just a great guy, interesting story, and he shows a lot of honesty and vulnerability in this conversation, which I think is of absolute use to everybody. So when you're spending time with this episode, it's not just about like music stuff or business stuff or geography stuff or nerding out about like revelation stuff. It's really about a person finding their way as a professional and really attending to their whole self, including their mental health. Uh, this is a great episode and Adam, I'm super appreciative of you. Before we get to it though, please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. My name is Aram Arslanian and this is One Step Beyond. everybody, welcome back. Uh, today's interview is one that I've been uh, really excited about for a long time. It's with an old friend of mine, a great guy named Adam. So Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, so for the uninitiated, for those who don't know about you or Revelation Records, who are you and what do you do? Well, my name's Adam Lentz. I work for Revelation Records and Rev Distribution. What a lot of people don't know is we're two different companies. We have Revelation Records, which is the record label, and I do work for Revelation Records in the fact that I have signed a lot of the bands and I, I help promote and sell the records, and then the bulk of my job is working for the distribution. I do um, all the sales, the wholesales. I do the vast majority of the purchasing, uh, logistics, just about anything else that follows under, the, under that umbrella. Um, I have my hands in somewhere or another, I guess, Technically, you could call me the distribution manager, but uh, I don't really like the word manager. I consider myself just like everybody else there, but I just, I have my, I'm stirring a lot of pots. Okay. Yeah. Um, so for people who don't know, who maybe don't know anything about music or have an interest in music, but don't know about Rev, mm -hmm. Rev is a very storied record label and distribution because it's the distribution has played a big role in like helping launch other labels or yeah. help other labels do things. So um, if you were just going to give us like a overview, like what can you tell us about Rev and then also the distribution arm of it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, Rev was started by Jordan Cooper and Ray Capo of Youth of Today in New Haven, Connecticut in 1987. And they put out some of the most important records of our genre circa the late 80s, first records by Sick of It All, Gorilla Biscuits, um, Inside Out, of course, with Zach De La Roca, who went on to Rage Against the Machine, and kind of started off with a bang. And there aren't many labels in the first three years of their existence that put out these records that are sustained themselves for, for decades. So in the early 90s, Jordan started a distribution 
and uh, we distribute not only our own label, but a host of other labels as well. And then we also carry just about everything else uh, in the punk world, and we've become kind of a punk one-stop. And for those who don't know what a one-stop is, it's a, a distributor who carries just about everything that you know a record store who might not be as specialized in one specific genre and carries a lot of different things to say, you know, I can get the new Harry Styles here and I can get a Gorilla Biscuits record and I can get a Linkin Park record. So we kind of do that, but just for everything in the punk universe. So someone can get suicidal tendencies from us, but they can also get an obscure-ish record like the new, you know, Candy Apple 7-inch on Convulse and then they can get, you know, Metallica, early Metallica records because those you know, kind of seep their way into the into the punk fabric. So, you know, any store who's like, you know, I don't know that much about punk, but I know that I can get all these classics and then maybe a few more obscure things to fill holes uh, can use us for that. And that's, that's the bulk of my job, what I do. Um, so if we think about like the record label side, I think most people have an idea like, well, a record label can help a band like yeah. launch the career and do that. Something that I thought was so cool that we were talking about before we started was about how a distribution can help a record label, like another record label, yeah. essentially like find its legs and get out there. So what like what role does a distribution like Rev play in helping another label kind of like actualize itself as a I mean, business? Distribution is huge, but it's taken on a very different role in the 20 years since I've been there. I mean, when when we started, such a you know such a huge chunk of the business was selling direct to record stores, and you know so many labels were so concerned with I got to get into every store, and that's a lot harder now. And a lot of labels depend, I'd say mostly on their direct to consumer mail orders, but you still want to get in the stores. You still want to be in the Amoeba. You still want to have your new releases out there and available. Um, in physical format and since there's I think less maybe less demand for record stores carrying records it doesn't make as much sense for a store to order a whole bunch of records from a smaller label so the fact that um, small labels don't have to worry about that they can just ship us boxes of stuff and then we can handle that for them really helps, especially since vinyl is such a nightmare to produce, to pack, and to ship. You know, a small label doesn't want to deal with that. Yeah. They don't have the boxes, they don't have the, you know, whatever, and we're perfectly happy to do that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it still is important, but it's, it's, it's shifted a little bit from where it was 20 years ago. So going to like, and again, for anyone who, who wouldn't know, and you already mentioned this a bit, but like Rev Rev and Rev Distribution is kind of rooted in punk and hardcore. Absolutely. Which is a, a super deep tradition in kind of mentoring other people along. And you'd mentioned some of the labels that now are like big, big labels mm -hmm. uh, that you'd helped on in the, in the early days. So if you think about more, more specifically from the idea of like mentorship and helping people out, like what's, what's the role that you or Rev or you play in like helping young bands, young labels kind of find their feet and, and find out how to do it. I mean, it's it's some of the, the best, you know, I think guidance for a young band or a young label at all. Even bands or labels we don't 
you know, necessarily have business dealings with. Like I've, I've had bands that I'm friends with been like, Hey, uh, we're going to sign this label has offered us a contract. We would look at the contract for me and see if it's cool. And my experience, you know, I did the best I could to help them in signing, signing the contract. And, you know, our, our business is so, I don't know what the, what the right term is. It's, it's very informal. So I think it it makes it easier for a small label to deal with where they're like, you know, is there any paperwork we have to sign? I'm like, no, nah, man, just send me the records and I sell them and I'll send you a check. Like, that's it. Yeah. Like you you worry about the, the production, the nuts and bolts. If you have any questions, let me know. But I'm just send me the stuff and I'm going to sell it and we'll get you going that way. And there's a lot of people who have dealt with us for so long that they trust what we carry. So, you know, I write the descriptions for almost everything we carry, which is like, dude, I got to listen to 20 different hardcore records this week. And, <laughs> and even if I think it's awful, like I got to write a description that's going to make, you know, Billy Hardcore at some record store in a tumble Iowa want to order it. Like, you know, so I got to do that. But the fact that they can trust me with their product is, is huge. Yeah. And you know, a lot of labels do leave us maybe for someone who has distribution through one of the majors like, you know, Orchard or Universal or Sony. But I hope that they can learn enough in their time with us that, you know, they can get their grips on production. They can get their grips on what distribution should be. And, you know, the same with, with bands. It's like, We've had, you know, all these 30 plus years of experience, you know, signing a band like like Big Laugh, for example, whose record came out yesterday. They, you know, have they've never really dealt with, you know, a label that's really going to hire like a PR agent like we did. Like this is what it takes, you know, to be a, a touring band who's really trying to get your get your name out there. There's a lot that a, a small label can do without distribution, but you know, there's a lot more that that we can do. You know, both from a label standpoint and a distribution standpoint. And you know, I want these bands to to learn and you know, let 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 us handle the really really crappy stuff. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't want a band to have to worry about like money or contracts or any of that kind of shit. You just go get in your van and you know, go do you, let me handle the, the, the punishers and the, 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 <laughs> the bookers and, and all these people. Okay. I, I want to get more specifically about mentorship. I'm going to give you an example. Okay. So I've interacted with Rev for years, never put out a release on Rev. I don't think <laughs> I've ever put out a song on anything that's having to do with Rev, but Rev has always helped always so if i'm like i remember when i the first time i was ever putting out a record for another band i was like i don't i don't even know what to do i literally just called someone up at rev i think it might have been you and just said i don't know how to do this and they walked me through it and i was mm -hmm. like here this this is this is good this is how you do it and i i had known people at rev at the time but just a, a, a teeny little bit and that record came out and you know it's like oh let's get you in the distro and then as things went along, I did my first record label, then I played in a band for a long time, then I did another record label. Every single time 
I didn't know how to do something, all I had to do was call someone at Rev or send mm -hmm. someone an email or send someone a text message. And a lot of my story as a professional, like what I do today with my business is tied to everything with punk and hardcore and all the things I learned. And one of the things I learned from Rev, and not just Rev, but a, a lot of the record labels surrounding, also like Indecision, Bridge Nine, Death Wish, was just people who had figured out how to do things mm -hmm. and were totally willing to share that information and mentor. Yeah. So when I think of you, like, and it might sound weird for you to hear this, I always just view you as just being this guy that like really wants to help people. And I view you as a guy who's like mentored a ton of people, but probably on it, not, not like I'm going to mentor yeah. you, but you've helped people learn how to do things. So like, what is in it for you? Like, why do you like doing that? I think a lot of it boils down to the fact that it's still a community mm. and everyone benefits by bands and labels and distributors and so on succeeding. Mm -hmm. There's to me there's no there's no such thing as competition except for maybe Amazon. Mm -hmm. But there's no such thing as as competition. And understanding that you want to start your label. I can envision where I was when I started at Rev and being like you know I I had people who worked there who helped me out with things. Mm -hmm. And I want to provide that for other people. I want to give them the same opportunity that I had. And uh, I was actually having this conversation last week with someone where we talked about getting older in the hardcore and punk scene and how your roles change in, into this mentorship yeah. where, you know, I'm never going to stage dive again. I'm, <laughs> I'm done. I'm never, probably never going to mosh again. <laughs> I'm never going to be at the front of the show, uh -huh. but because of my age and my experience, I now know how to make a record. Mm -hmm. I know how to book a show. Mm -hmm. I, even if I don't, can't do it myself, I can direct people the right way. And I mean, when you were in a band and you know, like 20 years old, or maybe even starting a label, if you hadn't had that person at Rev to help you, what like what would have happened? I just wouldn't. I, either I would have done a shittier job, or I wouldn't have done it. Yeah, or you would have had such a bad experience, you wouldn't have wanted to do it again. Yep. So, then through the the tenure of your label, you put out, you know, a record for Felt Low. Mm -hmm. If they hadn't had that record, I might not have heard them and been like, this stuff is incredible. I want to put out the record. Yeah. So my helping and mentoring, you know, from a strictly selfish standpoint means this might be something that would grow into something that I would want to work with later, mm -hmm. but also just as, a, as someone who cares about the music and cares about the people involved. I want to see people around me grow and have the same experiences I did when I was in my early 20s and just figuring out myself and figuring out life and figuring out the world. You know, I feel like so many people in the punk and hardcore world are there because something isn't quite connecting with the outside world. Yeah. And having that person that's gonna be like, I'm gonna guide you through this until you fully establish yourself and you can go do your thing is, so important like 
I don't know many people who haven't had that person, or even if it's just like one conversation you have with someone where a light goes on and you're like, okay, this is where I belong. And then this person becomes the next kid doing a label, doing a band, booking the shows in their hometown. And it, it blossoms from there. And then like they're doing the label that I'm distributing all of a sudden. And so like, that's, <laughs> that's uh, employment for me, you know, that's job security because of this guy's label that I mentored when he was 19 years old is now, you know, signing bigger bands that are, that are going on to do more things. So, you know, the mentorship aspect of it is, is huge, especially, you know, thinking about what I was like when I was 18, 19, 17, 16, and really, really struggling with the world and with my relationship with the outside world. And, you know, I had one or two people who were getting me into the music, you know, the mixtapes, the driving me to shows, you know, drinking boxes of wine in the back of, you know, <laughs> someone's mom's, you know, minivan on the way out to see, you know, some shitty punk band out in Riverside. But like those moments where it's like, I belong here. This is, this is it. This is my tribe. And having someone to kind of guide me through it until I really found myself is, is huge. Yeah, man. Well said. I just feel like, um, and like, I see this a lot in, in the business world where there'll be like a form, a former or sorry, a formal mentorship, like a mentorship program at a mm -hmm. company or people get like the company that around, they'll hire like a coach or whatever. And I, like, I love that in the, in the world. What I love though is in a scene, not just in punk and hardcore, but anywhere where people are like, oh yeah, I just want to like mentor and help out like yeah. that altruistic. And it's not that there's nothing in it for you. Of course, like even if it's just like feeling good that you're helping, I think that like getting rid of the idea that it shouldn't have anything for you. Like I think it's good. I think it's a wise strategy to mentor people that if their stuff pops someday that actually can yeah. help you out. That's great. But I know, especially knowing you, that's not why you do it. Yeah. And the idea of mentorship and people getting involved and feeling like they have something to offer, I think it's like one of the most important things that you can learn from punk and hardcore. And, and even just from being a person is like helping people out, uh, helping people figure out how to do things and kind mm -hmm. of be in the world is like one of the most valuable things you can do for like the world in society. Yeah. And, you know, you, you might relate to this in the way that your business life has become is, you know, you, you probably work with people who have no connection to punk and hardcore. Totally. And I remember when I, five or six years ago, I went back to school to finish my degree and then did an internship. And I had this absolutely insatiable work ethic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people ask me like, how do you do it? How do you have that drive? It's like, because I come from this universe where everything that gets done is done by the people involved. Mm -hmm. And that isn't done without working your tail off, whether it be, in bands touring and, you know, for no money at all, but you do it and you keep going and you don't stop or working for Rev where it's not always the most rewarding, but you do it and you keep going. And then, you know, explaining that to these people, like it's because I come from, from this world where the whole thing is built on work ethic. Everything is like you look at the early labels and you read about them and you hear the stories of SST and Discord Records who, we wouldn't exist without them. Like, totally. I face it, like Rev wouldn't exist without those labels. You look at the, the work that Greg Ginn, 
Black Flag, Ian Mackay, Minor Threat, Discord Records, what these guys put in, the whole the whole world is based on that and it still is. Mm-hmm. Like even talking to my contact at Death Wish, mm-hmm. one, one day I was on my couch at like 10.45 emailing Death Wish about like, you know, an order or, or something and he replied like immediately. And we're just sitting there it was probably like, you know, midnight his time. And I was just like, man, what are you doing working on a Saturday night? And then he replies, what are you doing working on a Saturday night? <laughs> and it's like, oh, shit. We're both doing this right now, man. Like, that's where, that's where it all comes from. Yeah. So, you know, like, and it's, it's you're, you probably have this example that you're trying to set for people, too, mm-hmm. in in the business world mm-hmm. where you have this work ethic and this is where it comes from, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So like how how do you like how do you des- and how do you describe being from this world and continuing to be involved in it when you're well in your 40s is another thing. Like I'm 42 and like explaining it <laughs> explaining it to my wife's parents for the first time. Like I met them, I was probably like 37 or so. And they're like, so you're still into punk. Like you still do this for a living. Okay. Like, and then trying to justify it so you don't sound like a total freak or loser. Like, yeah. And I'm sure that you've, you come across it too. Oh, dude. I like, <laughs> for sure. I, I just want to comment on what you just said though. Yeah. That like, that, that work ethic that you find in punk and hardcore and something that I hope people... Although this isn't like a punk and hardcore centered podcast, there are a lot of people from the punk and hardcore scene that listen to yeah. it. A thing that I always hope people hear is like, punk and hardcore is the best training ground to figure out how you want to just like architect what you want to do oh for a God. living yeah. for the rest of your life. And it could be like, maybe you go on to be an engineer. Maybe you go on to, to be a scientist. Maybe you go on to, to do anything. Like you want to open a restaurant. You want to drive buses, if you, whatever you want to do. The idea of, no, you're not like assembling records and mailing them to people, but all of the things that are attached to the discipline of work and the figuring it out. So like when you talked about like Discord, for example, I always loved the idea of how like they looked at like a pre-existing music system that was like, you know, especially music back then where it's like huge industry. It was like a very traditional industry ran by like power brokers and all this stuff. And it's like, oh, they're like, oh, let's take, let's take apart a cover and see how a cover is made. And we'll just literally make a template. We'll like cut pieces of paper ourselves, glue it ourselves, and let's figure out how to get it pressed. And they're just like, oh, there's this pre-existing big system and we're just gonna figure out how they do it and then do it ourselves. And that small group of friends doing that with a few other small group of friends around the country created something that 40 years later is like, well, here we are talking about this. It's the blueprint. It's the most amazing story of saying like, there almost is no big industry. I mean, there is, but then it just takes like some young people to come in and be like, oh, how do they do that? Okay, let's figure that out. And then us and our old friends will just do that. So that kind of empowering people to say like, whatever exists now, whatever big system exists now, if you apply yourself and you're interested in doing it, you're passionate about it, you can totally turn that industry on its head, create a whole new thing. And you can do that with any industry if you're willing to put in that that level of like, kind of like punk hardcore eth- uh, Ab- effort, absolutely. And 
I don't think there's a facet of my life that it doesn't ex touch in some way. And I don't think till the day I die, there's ever going to be any part of my life that it doesn't affect. I mean, all the way down to my relationships with my parents and how, or my, my wife and my friends and how you form these immediate bonds because, you know, even if I'd never met you before, if I was like, we were on a bus and you're like, hey, what do you listen to? I'm listening to Warzone. Guess what? Boom, we connected. Totally. So, and then you need that connection. You feed off that connection and you, you feel how important it is. So even like those connections, like I find those with other people in my life who aren't involved in punk or hardcore whatsoever. Like you look for that common ground, even if it's some random person. And, you know, like with, with my wife's family, like her sister's husband is really into soccer too. So like all of a sudden like, boom, oh, we found this. And I'm going to cultivate this relationship based on that because that's kind of how I form my friendships because of this music scene. Like you find that common ground and you, I'm really cognizant of that, of how I form relationships and it's all based on how I made friends coming out of the punk world. Yeah. It, it manifests itself in everything, like yeah. literally everything. Yeah. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit more about the music industry and then I want to like go into your story specifically. Sure. You said something to Monica in the pre-interview that I thought was totally fascinating, like the evolution of the music oh, industry. Yeah. How it was like every four years there'd be a kind of change. Yeah. But now it's like every four months there's a change. Oh, especially when the pandemic hit. You know, I started at Rev in 2002 and like a distributor would go out of business and it would be like weeks of, oh my God, what are we going to do? So-and-so went under. All these labels aren't going to have distribution, you know, blah, blah, blah. And now it's like once a month, it's like, oh shit, like this distribution went out of business in England and all these labels just got totally boned. And then, oh my God, pressing plant time just went from three months to a year and three months. What do we do? Yeah. Like, oh no, there's a vinyl shortage. There's no raw material out there. What do we do? So we went from like every three or four years, everything changing. And you know, it started when I started, like it was everything was CDs, like CDs were everything. We'd get a pallet of Coheed and Cambria CDs and sell them out the door. And then 2008 hits and everything stopped and everyone's downloading illegally. Yeah. And it's like, oh my God, are we gonna have jobs? And that was like the first huge shift in everything. And then it starts slowly building back up. And by 2012, things are in full swing, but with vinyl. But then, you know, as I said, like the pandemic hits and all of a sudden everything is just changing. Like it's almost hard to keep up with. Like you adjust to one thing and something else pops up. Like a band records a record and they turn it in like, okay, when can we tour on this? Uh, about a year and three months. So sit tight for a long while. You better hope no one forgets about your asses because no one's gonna hear from you for a year while this thing's in the can. Mm -hmm. Like it's in the constant adjusting and adapting. And that's kind of what had, what's made it so that Rev could stick around for a long time. I think the fact that we've been very aware of our expenses mm -hmm. and been able to analyze a very fluid industry yeah. and react to it and you know not necessarily like stick to some old way of of working and kind of 
checking that and being like, okay, we need to change like this way and do it slowly. And also people who change quickly, it's a lot harder for them to maybe adjust that. So, you know, slowly changing, evolving as things evolve. Cause man, it's, you know, as I said, the beginning of the pandemic, all of a sudden pressing plant times went to like two months and it was like fast like that. Boom, drain record comes out, sell out of a first pressing. Oh my God, second pressing's already done. We go to order a third pressing. It's gonna be a year. Like, well, you told us it was three months last time. What happened? Well, everyone started ordering records because everyone's sitting at home getting PPP loans, getting government stimulus checks, and they want to sit at home and buy records. And now the demand is just totally through the roof. Yeah. Um, let's go to the analytics for a second. Yeah. Something that I, I really like about Rev and that I, I don't want to speak to any of the record label, but I think it's fascinating about about uh, about Rev specifically. You have like a strong analytics process here because like I know I know Jordan's like when we talked to you, he's like, oh, I'm kind of like a glorified accountant in a lot of ways. Like I'm always looking at at, yeah. at the numbers. But think how many small businesses don't look at the numbers. So like there's someone who's really focused on the yeah. numbers there, but you're really focused on the analytics and like even down to like the geographical analytics. So yeah. what can you tell us about that? I mean I think a lot of, you know, labels and distributors probably make the mistake of being like, we're just going to do what we do, go as hard as we can. We'll worry about the numbers later. Well, yeah. by the time they worry about the numbers, the numbers are all totally red and they can't, they can't do much. Mm -hmm. So being analytical about it, you know, I know what's doing well, what's not, what's working, what's not. Mm -hmm. And then my background as a, geography had, you know, the analytics of selling a record. Where's this band from? Where have they toured? Where are they big? Where's this kind of music big? And then my brain is like, okay, they're from, you know, upstate New York. So I got to call this record store in New York, this record store in Buffalo, make sure that everyone who's, every store where they've played in the Northwest knows about them that kind of thing and kind of seeing my job as as a map yeah. and like it's it's not the kind of analytics that i think is that common especially in the music world but i really think it's it's helped me succeed at my job you know like making sure like i need to make sure one store one distro in every major city in the united states has this yeah. or i need to make sure that every distro or store big or small in such and such region region has this make sure they at least know about it okay this band is going on tour like newfound glory is on their tour right now for the record on rev i went through the dates you know hey emailed two or three stores in every city this is coming just so you know might be some demand in the area and looking at it that way and I, you know, a lot of people probably don't look at things like everything they do is a big map, but. Well, the reason I'm asked about this, like I know like you and Monica had talked about it, why it stood out to me is for two reasons. So one, like I run like a, you know, like a, I feel weird saying this, like I run like a company that's grown quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, and we have a sales leader that just joined who was like, oh, let's talk about your sales analytics. I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. And he was like, what? We didn't have analytics on anything. Like it was like, this is what we sold to this person at this time. Mm -hmm. But it was like, well, how do you forecast? How do you do this? How do you do that? Where's your client base? And it was a little embarrassing that like, you know, so I'm, I'm gonna be 49 this year. So I'm like, 
an adult adult. I have like kids, we like, you know, have a home. Like I have, I'm like a grown up and I've never had any analytics done on this business that I've been running for almost seven years now. And now that we've done it, it's like a total game changer. And the way that we forecast things, the way we think about business, it's like, it's changed in a six month window. So shout out to Rick. Great, great job. Thank you for like really making me feel embarrassed, but also helping me. That's been a huge thing. But I'm going to go back to, um, I used to run a record label that that you guys helped distribute. Yep. And it was the second label I'd done. The first one was very, very just small, like kind of hobby thing. Then I did one that wasn't intended to be a thing, but it kind of like right label, right time, right bands. It did well. And it did really well until it didn't do well. And then I got over my skis on three releases where one of them was a release that I believed in, yeah. but nobody bought. The second was a release of a European band where that release had already been put out in Europe and it's gone to a bunch of presses. And they're like, I promise you we're gonna come to the US. I did it and then they never came to the US, never played a show in the US ever again. Dude, yeah. And then there was a third. And then the third was a band that I really loved who I put out their record and they played two shows on it and it was a full length. I got over my skis, let's say to the tune of around $30,000. And I was working a full-time job. uh, And the label up to that point had kind of been a bit self-sufficient, but then suddenly wasn't. It's like suddenly I owe $30,000. Yeah. And the reason I'm bringing this up is like, at that point I was like, why the fuck am I doing this? Like, this is like a crazy gamble I'm playing with my life. And had I just, I was doing that whole thing that you'd said earlier. It's like, oh, we're just gonna put it out and so I go push it out, we'll worry about the numbers later. But then when I had to worry about the numbers yeah. later, I was like, ah, $30,000. Yeah. I see it all the time with labels. They'll yeah. put out that one release, they'll put out a double LP for some band and it won't do well. And oh my God, I just invested $20,000 in this release and I'm sitting on $15,000 of stock. Yeah. What do you do? Well, that's why I think this idea of analytics and it's like, I know it's like anyone listening is like analytics, like that's not cool. Like let's hear about the youth of today. Like, no, let's talk about analytics. Cause like running a small business, again, I'm running like a, like a serious, like uh, at this point becoming international company, we never did analytics. And it's crazy to think about how, how big of a game changer it is. It's like, you know, if you're running a small record label and you want that thing to go and like, and maybe not live off of it, but you want it to exist mm-hmm. and be able to put out records, you should understand the analytics of what you're doing because it's going to help. But you don't want analytics to keep you from doing something to take risk. Yes. But you could take a calculated risk because I, I want to go to this. You can absolutely take a calculated risk, mm-hmm. but it's the uncalculated risks that are the joy that that's that's the true joy is when you take that risk and you're just like i don't care like this could ruin my reputation forever i'm going to put this band out and it's going to sell 10 copies and jordan's going to say you're never allowed to do anything on the label again but i'm going to do it yeah and if it does well guess what like the first record i put out in revelation was the rival mob lp and I think we were at that point kind of just going to be like, well, you know, we'll do reissues and keep the back catalog in print and that'll be about it. And that, it just kind of fell in my lap and I was like, this is going to go one of two ways. Mm-hmm. Either this is going to be an abject failure and I'm never going to want to do this again, or this is going to breathe new life in the label. This is going to give me personally a huge motivator as far as what I can do 
it's going to go one of those two ways. Mm-hmm. We knew that the band, you know, sold pretty well, but they were never going to tour. They, you know, they do weekends here, there. So we ha- I had to do it, dude. And it did well. That's oh a great God. record. I, I think up to that point, because Jordan like didn't do a lot of big pre-orders on, like pre-orders weren't even a thing in the late 80s, yeah. but it was like the biggest pre-order, I think, in the label history. Like I went in on a Saturday just to print out the orders and it was like six hours yeah. of me just printing out these mail orders for it. Like, holy shit. Like it recouped mm-hmm. its costs in the first like hour of it being up for sale. Right, right record, <laughs> right band, right time. 100%. And it was, it was a risk. And the, the, the way it came about is I was emailing with Dave Sausage from Six Feet Under Records who put out their seven inch. Mm-hmm. And my last line of my email was like, I would give a certain part of my anatomy to do a record for this band. He forwards it to Doug. Mm-hmm. Doug says, I want this. And then Doug and DFJ come out here to see Soundgarden. Uh-huh. They just come by the office for 10, office for 10 minutes. Uh-huh. Yeah, we're gonna do this. Okay, but so that's another thing I wanna hit on. And then I wanna tuck back into that idea of calculator risk. Like, so you're talking to Dave who's put out a record for them, yeah. right? So, kind of traditional business idea would be like, oh, and like, no, they're, they're going to stay with me. But mm-hmm. instead, it's like, oh, these guys would love that. And in fact, I would like to buy that record. Why don't I create this thing? Mm-hmm. And it's like two different ways of looking at things. It's like you could get bands and then just kind of like put your arms around them. Or you could be like, or, or business, uh, and just kind of put your arms around and be like, this is mine. Yeah. Or you could say, hey, this is going to help everyone. The band will have a good experience. The label will have yes. a good experience. I'll have a good experience. Yeah. So shout out to Dave. I think that's, I love that part of that story. Yeah, and so, so check it out. Uh, a few years ago, we we released the first Drain LP. Mm-hmm. After that record, they signed Epitaph. Mm-hmm. So from from my point of view, from the label's point of view, I can... I can be pissed off. I can say, oh, well, you know, where they went to this label and there's like, you know, but from the standpoint of a fan of the people and a fan of the band and and business, which is the most important thing, we're here. Yeah, that's great. Epitaph is here. We got the rights for that first record. They're going to be on this bigger label, getting their money for promotion and everything they're gonna get this whole new audience who are all gonna check out the record we put out. Yeah. So on a business standpoint, it makes so much sense. Like, yeah, go ahead. I, I could be that guy being like, yeah, they have no loyalty, but you know, and then on a personal level, like, hell yeah, guys. Like, go go grow, go see the world, you know, and go use their money to, to make the absolute most of your of your lives and your experiences as young people as you can. Like 100%. I think anyone, I think everyone when that was announced was so stoked for Drain. Because like, that's like, that's like a huge win for like every like punk hardcore kid out there where you're like, holy crap, like they did the whole thing. Like Mm -hmm. you're a hardworking band, you're young, you're doing this stuff. You're on like the kind of the classic label. Yeah. And then Epitaph comes calling and you go and do it. It's like, that's like one of those like good news stories where everyone's happy. Yeah, and you know, I almost see it as as flattery that this band that I put my belief in, like Brett Gerwitz yes. likes this shit too, you know? Like, so 
I saw something and I was right. I was right about that. Yeah. And, you know, good for them. Spread your wings. Yeah. All right. Let's go to the calculated risk side. So like, you know, as I said, I'm like, now that we've got analytics for the first time, I'm like, I'm all about it. But at the same time, you don't want to be locked in. No. Right. You want to be able to take risks. You want to be able to like just enjoy something, bet on a band, bet on. So for me in business, like bet on an investment, bet, mm -hmm. bet on like, can we hire this person and try this new thing? I love stuff like that, but calculated risk. So something Chris Wren said to me once, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Chris Wren runs a record label named Bridge Nine that uh, I love Chris. Shout out to Chris. Um, he said something to me that I thought was so interesting. Well, he didn't draw his personal salary from Bridge Nine. He always drew his personal salary from Sully's, his t-shirt company. And when I said, hey, how come you do that? He was like, just for me, I feel that once you start get like once your paycheck comes from your passion, you have to start thinking about what's going to sell rather than what I just like. And he's like, I kind of started getting that way. And, it, and so I started to just draw my money from from Sully's mm -hmm. just so I can put out whatever record I want to put yeah. out. Okay, so that works for Chris because he has this separate separate business. What's your what's your thinking about like that? When do you do the calculated risk that that trade off of like, I like this and I actually think this is going to sell like drain versus yeah. I like this and I don't know if it's going to sell, but I believe in this. And that's, you know, this whole, you know, we are we are a business. Bottom line, yeah. we have bills to pay, we have payroll to make. But we also identify as punk. Yeah. Where like it's it's a constant where do I draw the line? You know, I mentioned that we sell Metallica records and maybe a few records that are like mainstream but still kind of are somehow related to, to the punk world. Like could we sell Adele and Harry Styles? probably but do we we want our money in that or do we want to be you know here in this thing we're good at and you know putting out records is a lot of the same thing because i have extremely dogmatic tastes in hardcore and punk no, you no no shit I word got out huh <laughs> and i love the raw i love the gritty and a lot of that isn't going to sell, man. Mm -hmm. Like some of my favorite records come out in the last 10 years. I mean, they probably didn't sell more than 200 copies worldwide. So I wouldn't put that out. Right. Uh, so, you know, it, it comes back to the analytics. Will we sell enough to make it worth it? Will the band do their job and get in their van and go and play shows so everyone can hear it? And at the same time, a band might come along who's like, oh, you know, there's this label we that's really big. Like, oh, there's this label, you know, maybe we can put out a record there and get some street cred or something like that. And it's like, you know, we might sell 50,000 copies, but do we, we want to do that? Like, there's a level of ethos that we need to maintain. Yeah. And I know we were talking really about this, this newfound glory record. And analytically, it's like, you know what, this is low-hanging fruit we're gonna sell a ton of these yeah. but at the same time you know would anybody at the label really listen to it i don't know will some people scoff at us for doing it heck yeah. yeah but is it the right thing to do to put this record out like yes absolutely these people know what we stand for and they've been along for the ride 
since they were kids. So yeah, that makes sense. And it's just, just maintaining your ethics and while trying to be a business is, is tough. Yeah. And people talk, man, like when, if you do something in it and someone ends up being a terrible person or it's really transparent that this is, you're only doing this as a business maneuver, mm-hmm. people talk and people see it and people, people smell that. Yeah. And, you know, that's part of the, the risk that you have to analyze. Like, what is this going to do to the outward appearance of my company? Yeah. This could be a net positive or net negative to how people in our world view us because we don't want to alienate anyone from our world. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about and and also the new found glory thing. I think like just to, to touch on it, um, like those guys I, i've had very very teeny little interaction with them mm-hmm. i played in an old band that was in uh I, I think we were in australia and those guys are in their huge band and they had an off day and they came to our little show and we didn't know any yeah. of them they came they wouldn't take free merch they bought merch they were the coolest nicest guys it's like yeah like not only does it make sense from like an analytics point of view it makes sense from like a culture point of view because they like i like what you said it's like they've been along for the ride like chad's on multiple rev releases but they're fans of the label and supporters of the label and it's it's almost like when they came to us with the project like we wanted to be like this is our thank you to you guys for being so down and down to earth like the singer lives in orange county and he shows up to shows a program. Like he's in their videos in like gag shirts. And gag is like, that shit's uncomfortable to listen to, man. Like, I mean, <laughs> but in a good way. Like I love hardcore punk that makes you like, ooh, yeah, this guy's like doing some crazy shit, man. Like, that's awesome. <laughs> what? So the, the drummer of Change is a band that I play it is the drummer of Gag. Shout out Jeff. Uh, shout out to Jeff. And like, we talk a lot about like, what's the difference? Because Jeff is like prolific, been in a ton of bands, but it's like, like we talk about the difference and it's just like, yeah, you know, like Gag is intensity all the time yeah. in a good way. Like it's like focus yeah. intensity. Like, you know, they're all characters, insane band, best, like best, but definitely uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, I mean, I get like we're getting off track, but like the multi multifaceted idea of like in this world, it's like it's like a world driven by characters as well. Mm-hmm. But like, and so those characters have so many different things where they could be like the nicest people, but also like <laughs> totally wild like maniacs. Oh yeah, yeah, dude. If you if you like knew me at twenty one or twenty two, like holy shit, I was totally out of my mind. Totally. But the whole thing is like. Everybody is like that. Like you yeah. get this whole scene of people who are all just out of their, out of their mind. <laughs> and that's why we're there. Yeah. Cause no one else is going to get that. Totally. All right. So let's go back. Let's go back to the business. Cause I, I want to ask you a question before we start talking about you more specifically. Um, and I asked you this before we started recording, if you even want to talk about this. So Rev's got this like legacy back catalog, like legacy, legacy, like you said, a nuclear apocalypse, apocalypse comes, the cockroaches are buying like, inside out seven inches yeah so legacy people always love and care about it but the label has continued and has continued to put out new records and it's had times where it hasn't done that for a while but rev has gone through a lot of phases so you know i think pretty commonly people talk about is after what would be considered that like really core group of legacy stuff Mm -hmm. it's like rev went into what it's called like it's weird phase where it was putting out like 
records that were more indie rock mm -hmm. or uh, alternative music. And then it kind of worked its way back into putting out a bunch of hardcore again, then worked its way out of that. It's truly had a lot of ebbs and flows as a record label. Since you've become more active, like starting with Rival Mob on, it's felt more like a record label again. Like you're putting out new re new releases, like current bands, you're taking risks on some bands. But as someone who's helping like pick what bands go on the label, how, like do you even think about it? And if you do, how do you manage like, listen, there's a huge legacy, but I don't wanna be tied down by that. I wanna do what I wanna do, mm -hmm. but also respecting what has been. Like how do you manage that balance of like managing the legacy while also doing stuff that's like current and matters now? I mean that's easy i don't have anything to do with the legacy mm. i let you know jordan and other people who work there that's that's their world i don't have a lot of connection to that anymore really yeah. and after 21 years of working there i don't really need to talk about that anymore like if someone random starts talking to me about a classic rev band i'll kind of tune out and be like you know but have you heard the new i don't know city hunter lp like you know, I want to talk about like the the now stuff because yeah. I've I've had those conversations. I've had the conversations about the old stuff. I don't need it anymore. Mm -hmm. Someone at work can deal with that. Like my my closest interaction with that world is emailing Jordan or our production guy and saying like, "Hey, we're down to this many youth of the day LPs. We need to order more." Right. Or like, "Hey, let's get some some new merch for X band," and then I just put it in their court. They run with it. I see the numbers because of distribution and I just I just let those guys handle it. But I'm going to go back to part of what you said in the question where you said it seems like Rev has become more of a label. And in the 90s, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, whatever, Rev was putting out, uh, you know, we were venturing into more indie and, and different sounds. But what's always remained, always, and I think this is something that the label can hang their hat on, and be incredibly proud of is every band always had a connection to hardcore or punk or revelation in some way. Yeah. When you look at those bands, almost all of them had members of hardcore bands and you get had members of brotherhood. Texas is the reason had people from the hardcore scene in New York and Garrett was from the hardcore scene in Buffalo. I mean, even stuff like Whirlpool came from hardcore state of the nation came from hardcore. Like, all of them understand it. Even the bands that I've dealt with that aren't necessarily hardcore bands, I'm gonna say, you know, Tidal Fight and Fell to Low. Mm. Those kids are all hardcore kids. Yeah. They know what it what it means to be on, on Rev. And everybody who put out bands for Rev, whether it be um, Enright or Jordan or John Nutcher or, I don't even know if he put records out, or James Allen, these bands, these people brought these bands in because they loved them yeah. and because they wanted to work with them and because these bands knew what it was about. So it's not exclusive to my time being in, being involved with the label, but like, you know, before I did, it was Bob. Yeah. And Bob loved those bands. Yeah. Bob loved Revelation. So that right there is as down to earth as it gets. So it's never, it's never really straight away from that either. Even when we were putting out like Wilhaven records and, and stuff like that, like those, those guys all knew. And the person who brought them in loved those bands. Yeah. And that's as genuine as it gets. Dude, I, I love what you just said there. And huge shout out to Bob, uh, totally real dude. And I 
love you, man. You're an awesome guy. But okay, I love what you just said because like the idea of like managing people's what people want out of a record label, like the relationship with the record mm-hmm. label. I want to tie it back to something you'd said like kind of early on about like as you as you grow up in the scene, you kind of have to understand how your role changes. Mm-hmm. And like part of that is like as a guy who grew up on early rev bands, it's like my relationship with the record label can stay the same or it can change and it can mature and grow and be like, oh, I want to check this out. If Rev's putting it out, that means someone in Rev believes in it. Mm-hmm. I want to check that out because I trust that someone were, and it doesn't mean it's going to always be going to be a hit. Like we were talking about one of the bands uh, earlier on where I was like, oh, I kind of got the CD by mistake. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know why someone, yeah. I don't know why someone sent it to me, but I checked it out out of like, hey, it's on Rev, someone on Rev loves it. But that idea, it's like, there's nothing wrong with wanting your favorite band or your favorite record label to stay the same. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're doing that, then you're basically saying, I'm not going to grow mature with this thing. And you can totally stay in that space and like, that's awesome. Yeah. Or you can make the choice of being like, hey, just like I'm a person growing and maturing, like I'm going to invest myself in a few labels or a few bands and just kind of follow what they're doing. And maybe some of it's going to suck. Some of it's going to be okay. Some of it's going to be great. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to know unless I like kind of take that leap with the label or the band. Yeah. And I wouldn't want to be that label that puts out the same thing over and over and over. Like I like to look at the, the bands that I brought in and be like, okay, like this is different. Like this is title fight. And then it's planted on a chain, which like, dude, you could get much more different than that. And that's cool. Cause that's my taste. Like I listen to so many different genres and different sounds. It's like, you know, and I want to kind of reflect that, yeah. but I also want, I don't want people to stop checking out rev stuff. I don't want to throw so many curveballs in a row they're begging for a fastball and they never get it, yeah. you know? And, you know, funny story. I went to UC Santa Cruz right out of high school when I was 18. And uh, my dorm was near the radio station. The radio station had a sale of all the CDs that they would get as promos. And I bought one because it had the Rev logo on the back. And I was assuming it was going to sound like A. And it sounded like, like Z. And I was like, <laughs> oh, my God. Whoa, this is... Yeah, I'm not keeping this thing, man. So that happened. But that's also the first time I heard the Burn 7-inch. I was at Bionic Records in Fullerton. I looked at the Rev logo on the back. I was like, okay, it's got the Rev logo. This cover is super awesome. I took it home and my brain melted. Of course. Like the opening drums, like, holy shit. This guy's hitting these drums so hard. How is he going to hurt himself? And, oh. Like, like unbelievable. And you just fall in love with it. So... I want people to be able to check out everything that I do on Rev because they trust us and they don't think I'm going to lead them astray. And the coolest thing about it, and we talked about this before we went live, I can sign a band like Felt Low that's kind of out of left field sonically. But I just made thousands of people listen to that, whether they like it or not, just because it's on Rev. And just a commentary about Felt Low, like anyone here who's not into punk and hardcore, check out Rev, but check out this Fell Too Low record. Cause if you're from like almost any genre of music, I think there's something on that record for you. But if you're from punk and hardcore, check out that LP. I think it's A, it's brilliant. Straight up brilliant it's record. It's genius. All of their releases re- leading up to it. There's not a bad Fell Too Low record on any label anywhere. Yeah. And they're one of those bands that I think like, there's just so many bands that didn't get the attention they deserve. 
they're one of those bands that I think is like, could have been like a cult status band because they're Absolutely. so good. And they still might be. And, you know, if people who are watching this aren't necessarily versed in punk and hardcore, but it's got so many vibes of unwound mm -hmm. and slint and shellac and that kind of indie band. Uh, Bob Weston did some of the, I think I want to say the mixing mastering. So it has that like, almost Steve Albini sound of, of the drums. But, you know, John left the band very quickly after it came out and they played shows here or there with other guitar players, but it was never the same. Yeah. So it came out, there's a moderate amount of fanfare and then, but the people, the people who like that record absolutely love that record. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's like one of those things, no one's like, lukewarm on it's like either you absolutely love it or you don't really know it exists that's it because nobody dislikes that record if you've listened to that record you like it period i don't think there's anyone that's like it's not a good record it's like i had i had plenty of people say to me you know what this isn't my thing and yeah but that's different than saying it's not a good record yeah like, and i'd even say even if someone who says it's not their thing if you listen to that record five times it becomes your thing that's a yeah. i believe it's a like that's like, you know, those TV shows that come back because like there's like just like this weird underground fan base that was like, yeah. we love this show and then it came back. It's like there should be a weird underground fan base of like fell too low heads that make them come back. And I think and I think there might be someday, but in so. the, the interesting people who make this band up have all continued to make music mm -hmm. and the music is incredible, but nobody knows about it. Like Walker, who's the drummer is in this band Knucklebunder. Uh -huh. It's something like that. No one knows what it is. But it's an extension of the the darker, moodier, more sparse sounding elements of Felt Hello. And it is genius. And he's been in I'm I'm gonna go off on a tangent a bit, but I really want people to hear about this kind of thing. Is he after Felt Hello dissolved, he went to Southeast Asia just by himself. Like, I gotta go do this. And he was posting uh, videos on his Instagram of music like he'd see in the street or there was one thing that he posted that was singing in a church there but he put it over video of him out in in the harbors and just out in the ocean and they have those big rock spires just out in the you know south south pacific that are covered in lush greenery and he put this music of these people singing these really almost melancholy church songs over it. And I listen to that and I go back to it all the time because it's so beautiful. These guys are still doing these things. You know, um, Shane has been doing bands. He's been doing hardcore bands and doing, I think he played in J-Dust a little bit. Shout uh, out and Rudy and J-Dust. And J-Dust is awesome, awesome, awesome. Yeah. We, we played a few shows with J-Dust and they're their band coming into their own. Both their records are killer, the mm -hmm. demo's killer, but to see them live yeah. is to see a band where you're like, oh, you gotta see this. And like Travis has been in Minus, who were like one of the more unique bands in hardcore that never got the following it should. Like John's playing in Charman, who basically play bars and parties in Ventura, and they're mm -hmm. genius, and he plays in uh, Cola Boy's band, like which is fantastic. So these guys are still doing, genius musical work yeah. and it all came together on this one record mm -hmm. and I got to make the whole world hear it except it didn't catch on 
That's the idea though that I love. It's like, okay, so we're talking about you're running a business and so you got all the things, analytics and all of that. And then you're <sighs> like, here's a calculated risk. Let's say like rival mob, like rival mob was a calculated risk, right? But then you've got that thing where you're like, this isn't a calculated risk. I love this band. This is a special, yeah. special band. It's unlikely it's going to pop, but I'm still going to invest in it yep. anyways. And running a business is, a, is an interesting kind of mix of all of those things. You've got your analytics. You know where your money's coming from. You know where you can invest. Some things just make business sense. Newfound glory just makes business sense. Yeah. And there's good sides to it too. Makes business sense. Then let's say a drain. Young band. But it's a calculated risk, but not too big of a risk, you know, or rival mob. Calculated risk, but not too big of a risk. Then you've got something like fell too low, which is like, this is brilliant. And I'm going to sink money into it. And if that money comes back, great. But if it doesn't, it was worth it because something beautiful exists. Absolutely. That record, because when people see that record, they're like, hey, this doesn't look like anything on that label. And like, oh, you put this out. Yeah. I was like, and also people that were associated with the label at the time, like other bands and people who were like working for the label were like, and I, I liked that. I liked that people were like, wow, that's weird. And actually someone say like, what are you going into your, into the react weird phase now? And I was like, yeah, maybe. Cause we put that out in a couple other records. We put out a transmitters record, which sold very well. And I was yeah. really stoked on it. But, um, that fell too low record. Something, um, Dave Larson said, uh, Dave, who used to run excursion records, he'd said to me, my philosophy about putting out a record is you have to love it enough that you're willing to own 1000 copies of it. And, mm -hmm. That fell to low record, which it did sell. It sold. It sold fine, but like, I'd be willing to own a thousand copies of yeah. that record. It's so great. The other two records that pushes over the top, that pushed me, that pushed me there. It was like, I don't want to have like sour grapes about it because everyone's like well intentioned and all these things. But it's like when you're when you're in that space of you don't have analytics and you're like, I'll just let the numbers tell me later, uh, or like I'll figure out the numbers later. I probably wouldn't have put out those two records based on if I'd had analytics and I'd had those ideas. And that's not the band's fault. It's the fault of a guy at the time that yeah. had a label that was going well, but was starting to get over its skis financially. And then I made three decisions. But, One, did, you, but did you love those bands? That's a tough question. I At the time, did you love those bands? Fell to not low. Not hindsight. Fell to low. 100% love. I'd put out that record today again. 100%. The other two... Um, one of them, I 100% love, 100%. And I listen to that record now and I'm like, this record rips, rips. The other one was more of a, I like what the band is about. And I like one of the people in the band I knew well. Mm -hmm. And I did it, I, basically it was like, would you do this for me? Okay. And I All said, right. yes. Edit this out, what bands are they? <laughs> so yeah, like, of those three records that kind of put it over. And I don't want to pin my shift out of the thing just only on that, like uh, only on those three records. Cause like my career at that time was really starting to kind of take off. You know, I was in school full time. I was just in a different part of my life. Yeah. And it, it got to a point where I was like, every weekend I'm packing records every weekend I'm doing all this stuff, which I, I liked doing cause it was like a hangout, but it was like all my free time was packing records or answering emails. I wasn't hanging out and doing like people would be sending me photos of like this hike they were on. And I'm yeah. like, oh, I'm packed in records. Then I had these three releases that like two of them, one of them fell too low, do it again in a heartbeat. Yeah. Another one was like the, the record was so raging and like, it's such a cool record that I'm like, yeah, I'm glad I did it, did it even though it 
like, you know, it was a tough financially. And then one of them was just like, kind of like, it was just one of those weird things where it's like the band didn't do what they said they were going to do. Mm-hmm. And it put me in a bad spot. But mm-hmm. thinking of all that stuff, it's like no regrets really like over time. Yeah. But this also comes back to talking about calculated risk. Part of the, you know, calculation you're taking in is someone's word. Mm-hmm. And there have been plenty of times when a band has told us, yeah, we're going to tour on this record. We're going to do all this. We're going to, you know, we're not going to spend that much money. We're not going to run up the debt. We're going to, you know, f- float us money for flights somewhere for a van or something. And you're part of your taking in the analytics and the data is taking in what you're told by people. And we all know, you know, that you know, shit happens. People leave bands. People get girlfriends and wives and they partners. They don't want to be in the van all the time anymore. People get jobs that, oh my God, all of a sudden I got I can make all this money if I'm not gone all the time. So sometimes even the analytics you're looking at isn't gonna come through in the long run because life happens. And yeah. you're dealing with people. Well, and in, in this world, unlike the business world, there's not contracts often or there are contracts but they're loosey-goosey so like someone's word really matters and we do have contracts Mm -hmm. but i don't feel comfortable being the guy who says well you have to do everything by the letter for this contract yeah the last thing i want to do is having a is have a personal relationship with someone go sour over a you know a punk record label contract like mm-hmm. I don't want that to happen. Yeah. Do you know how many bands are technically in breach of contract at any given moment? Like tons of them. Mm-hmm. But I'm never gonna enforce that. Like mm-hmm. I will if I absolutely have to, but I don't want to. Yeah. Well, we don't want to. Even going to like corporate contracts, like let's say like a non non compete, like that stuff is like really hard to enforce anyways. Like for me, like the through line is like you got to be as good as your word, and. That's also a tough thing because like as good as your word, like not that fairly recently, like to be totally transparent, I had to like, we had to lean on a contract for, for a former employee, just a little bit, had to just remind them about something about a contract. And that's uncomfortable. That's like, yeah. like a, it's super uncomfortable. It because, burns a bridge. Well, it's uncomfortable to do because I come from the punk world, but on the same time, it's like, hey, this is kind of a version of something in the punk, in the punk thing. It's like, you know, this yeah. is your thing that you agreed to do. And I thought about it a lot and it's like, listen, if this goes south, am I really willing to go down that route? No, not at all. At the same time, like the through line should be, be as good as your word. And as a person coming from punk, do you feel that you have more of a tendency to empathize with someone? Way more, too much so, too much. Because you have, because we, like the punk scene depends on your relationships with other people. Everything does. And that carries over and everything else because that's you know the decades of our life spent doing this. Can I can I tell you when that's changed for me though? Is not that it's fully changed, but like I am I have chronically been in my life like um, two things. One, I've chronically been like a people pleaser, and I've really tried to change that because it's just like an unhealthy healthy habit to be in. So I've really worked on that, and I've I've changed that more to just having healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. But in the business world, I have. I'd say chronically, like over-trusted people. I'd be like, listen, your word is good here. Just do your thing. I don't pay attention. I, I don't pay attention to people's worlds. But where that's changed is when I became 
a father and uh, a partner and I own a house. My mom lives with me because my dad is, uh, is in a care home and I have, we have 30 employees now. And when I stopped looking at it from, I would just prefer to be just like, oh, do your thing. Don't worry yeah. about it. That's my preference is just be like, everyone do their thing. I don't want to be like that to like, I have so much responsibility now and I have to be, my team has to trust me and my family has to trust me to do the right thing all the time. And the right thing sometimes is actually like asking people questions, like checking on people's work is occasionally reminding like a former employee of a contract. Yeah. And the, the, I'd say the, the like young me is like, oh, it's not punk to do that. But the old me is like, actually this is like for me the most like punk thing is like your word should be your bond and you should know that I'm going to carry myself respectfully to everyone and I expect everyone else to do the same but that changed when all of those things kind of landed on my shoulders yeah and and I still have had a hard time not trying to be the most empathetic person I I can Mm -hmm. and that seems to come before everything else Mm -hmm. you know for as long as I've been there and the amount of responsibility I've taken on like I guess um, a leader I'm a manager I don't know I don't really like to see myself that way but yeah it, it happens but everything always comes back to me wanting to give everybody I work with the benefit of the doubt in all situations because mm-hmm. I think inside these people no matter what happens no matter what's said no matter how loud voices get they're all people with the right heart mm-hmm. and I always look at that and it is such a small company and it is such a close knit group that I want to keep all those relationships intact. And I see the good that everyone brings to the table. And I try to focus on that, even though, you know, sometimes maybe I I shouldn't and I should hold people more accountable, but it's, it's too hard to do. And I, I can't kick that, that mindset of, just wanting everyone to be, you know, I like being the guy that everyone can come to. I love it. I don't think you should kick that mindset. Let's let's start talking about you specifically. Um, did you mean to have a career in music? Absolutely not. <laughs> no one does. I, you know, it's the people that do. It's the people that do that I think get burned out sometimes. Uh-huh. And every once in a while, I'll get contacted by someone who's like oh so and so is is a music major uh you know a music business major something like that and they want to get into the industry what do you have what advice do you have and i was like don't do it like you're com- like coming at it from that angle is i don't think is is necessarily the right way at least not for me it wouldn't be the right way like everything I've experienced and people that I know in the music industry that are really successful, no one went into it with like, I'm going to be a business music business major and I'm going to go right into upper management. Like it's people who started in the trenches, like all the biggest labels, even in our world, none of them went into it. Like, yeah, I'm going to do this successful label. Like it all came because like revelation started because Ray and Jordan wanted to put out a Warzone seven inch. That's the only reason that they started the label. And it went from there. Like you look at the early days of Bridge Nine, like no better, better example, going back to SST and Discord, those labels started out of necessity. Mm-hmm. No big label's gonna put out my band. Mm-hmm. No major label's gonna give us 
a tiny chance we're going to do it ourselves. And those turned into incredibly, you know, lucrative careers for people out of necessity. And even someone starting out like me at this label, I needed a job. Oh my God, I lost my job at the screen printing shop. My roommate at the time worked at Rev. You'd be perfect. Here I am 21 years later. All right. So you start there as like, what were you doing? Screen printing? I started doing sales to domestic record stores. Mm -hmm. My job was to call record stores and sell them CDs. Mm -hmm. So over time, and, and still to a degree, you kind of became like an everything person, like a mm -hmm. jack of all trades. You do a little bit of everything at the label, right? Yeah. But that whole time, did you have another plan? Like, okay, this is just the job until I go into this other thing. Everything was in the moment. Okay. But you went to college twice. Until. Everything okay. was in the moment until I, you know, had a few, I think... A healthy person is constantly analyzing their lives, making sure that everything you do is correct. Yeah. Um, by doing the best thing to be for my myself, and I actually started questioning where I was in life. Number one, number two is I met my wife, mm -hmm. and uh, you know I was questioning what I was doing, and I really wanted to try to improve myself. So I went back to school. I actually did went back to school twice. One time I was just like, eh, I'm going to just get my general out of the way at the junior college just in case. Like I lived a few blocks away. The classes were super easy. I could have taught half of them. They were so easy. And like, you know, just to do it, there wasn't really any reason. And then really going back and focusing later just to, to better myself. And so that's when it started to creep in that I need to start really looking out for my personal well-being and Adam in 10 years, Adam in 20 years. If, you know, it's a very volatile industry, man. Like what we saw in 2008 when people stopped buying CDs and started downloading everything. Like we were on the brink, man. I had to take every Friday off uh, just because I was hourly and, you know, money was tough sometimes we had we had really tough months and then 2012 all of a sudden everyone's buying vinyl again beginning of the pandemic everyone stopped buying vinyl a few months into the pandemic when all these loans and and stimulus checks are hitting everyone's buying vinyl again mm -hmm. it's this crazy roller coaster ride and you know sometimes now as a guy in my 40s do i want to be on that I don't always know. Is that best for me and now my family? I don't know. So I went back and started actually thinking about life after Rev and what what would I want to do? And you got a geography. Geography, yes. Now, what got you into that? I love geography so and, much. And always have? Always. Since I was like five and my family had a National Geographic subscription and everyone came with a map. And we'd get them out and lay maps out on the floor and it was either with my dad or with my mom, just look at them and analyze them. Mm -hmm. And just fascinated ever since, just totally in, just enwrapped by geography and place and space. And being in a band and touring the US 
with that brain, with a geography brain, and sitting there just looking out the window like, there's the Shenandoah River, there's the, you know, whatever, Chesapeake Bay, there's this, there's this, there's the fall line, there's the Cumberland Gap, like all these things, you know, and if I would have said anything in the van, they would have made fun of me endlessly. <laughs> but like, these are all things that I saw on maps growing up and just, oh, this is perfect, just it. unbelievable. So when I went back and did my general ed, I took a few geography classes because they'd be easy and figured out like, you know, that you can major at this at Cal State Fullerton, which is a few blocks from my house. So I went into their geography department. My graduating class was like, what, 30 or 40 people from the department. And just, I loved it. Like I, I, it was the hardest two years of my life because I was working full time, going to school full time. And since I wasn't getting all the hours I needed, I would deliver food just to like make my rent. Like, okay, I'm short this much because I'm not working. So I need to deliver food. And so I got this crazy work ethic where I would not, even after I graduated, I could not be at home and do nothing. Like I get home from work and sit on the couch and look around and be like, I can't just sit here and watch TV with my wife. Like I gotta, I gotta do something. I gotta like work. I gotta get my laptop out and start working. Or I gotta like, you know, do the dishes or I got to go for a run or I got to do anything. Like I can't just sit here. Time's wasting. Yeah. And it just totally consume me. And I'm starting to get back into being able to relax. But for a long while, it was just nonstop. Like always, always, always doing something, doing something. Well, what was the decision point? Because you didn't just graduate. You graduated at the top of your class, right? Yeah, I graduated the, well, I mean, 40 people. Mm-hmm. You know, top of 40 people isn't as good as... Uh, you know, if there was a thousand people, but yeah. And I think a lot of people when they're fresh out of high school, aren't really ready. And I went right out of high school, I went to UC Santa Cruz and I went for one year and I got kicked out for bad grades, which is extremely ironic because they didn't even have grades there. Like when I went there, all the classes were either you pass or you fail uh-huh. and your teacher gives you a written evaluation. Uh-huh. And I did so poorly, they I got expelled. Wow. And luckily, when I went back to school, mm-hmm. they, the people there read those transcripts, and they were like, what the hell is this? Okay, they're just all A's. <laughs> so so I, I kind of looked out that way. But you know, when you, then when you go back later, you have this new sense of purpose on why you're doing it. Yeah. And you understand that your life is shorter. And then when you find your, something that you care about, all of my classes all of a sudden were surrounded by people who had a similar view of the world or view things more spatially. And my teachers cared about things in that sense. And you, you can talk about, you know, some strange national park in some faraway country. And it's like, oh my God, this person doesn't think I'm a freak. You know, my, my senior, my senior thesis was about the tourism industry in Mongolia. Yeah. Like, oh, of course it was. Name name one other person who, who even like knows anything remotely about that. And it was just so cool because I felt like I was exploring the world just in my studies and all my classrooms were maps everywhere and globes everywhere. And I took GIS courses, which for those uninitiated is geographical information systems, which is like 
basically a computerized map of everything where every road and every you know area of space has data associated with it so every utility city county state country large business has a gis department because it's all spatial analytics so you know taking those classes was incredible just everything i did was about space and and place and all of that and just so just the way, you're, the way you're talking about it, like you're yeah. lighting up, you're like you physically, you're different, like, you know. Oh, dear. So what What was the, well, I love it. Like, yeah. is what What was the decision then to not follow that as a career rather than staying in music? <sighs> okay, so uh, during my last semester, right after my last semester, I got an internship with the Orange County Public Works Department mm -hmm. in their stormwater department where I was going and analyzing the catch basins, which is where there's little gaps in the sidewalk where the water flows down into the storm drains and then out the channels. So I got an internship doing that. And they offered me a job and I had to go take a physical. And literally while I was in the doctor's office getting the physical, the person who was the number two at Rev at the time called me and said that she was leaving. So then I was like, Oh, here's a, here's like one of my, the toughest decisions I've ever had to make in my entire life. Do I go and take this job and leave Rev basically without the number two and three people, which would have been, who knows what would have happened? Like, or do I stay at Rev and I can put my degree on the back burner and I decided to stay. Uh, some days it's a great decision. Some days it's a terrible decision. Depends on what day you ask me. Um, and I've been thinking a lot, especially lately, about that degree and that internship and what it felt like to be in the field working with, you know, maps and a GIS system and my partner and I, when we were doing the internship, were developing an app that was like a, a stormwater maintenance tool where we would go and catalog all the catch basins in a specific area and all the, the details, like what kind of drain does it have? How big is it? So that if there was ever a maintenance problem or, or flooding, they could just go like, okay, this is catch basin number 276. It's this kind of, uh, you know, opening it's got this diameter you know drain out to the channel so they can quickly move on it and you know take care of any problems that could happen which is which is great and then we also looked a lot at what actually goes into the catch basins which I think go into the channels which then go into the ocean and boy there's a lot of nasty stuff that goes in there so how do you feel about your decision now Uh, right, right now, this very second, okay. I, I, I would love to do something with that degree I got. Um, and like, the reason I'm asking is like, again, we've known each other for like 20 some years and we've always known each other. It's like, Hey, how you doing? Yeah. Like chat a little bit. My conversations with you about music are typically like terse and short. <laughs> and my conversations with you that rare, but when, when they happen about other mm -hmm. things like around this are like way more expansive, like what just happened there. Yeah. And dude, I love, 
I love you at Rev. I love Rev. I love all these things. And I'm always interested in people doing like, are you doing something that's interesting or do you, are you doing what you love? Yeah. And don't take my, you know, bubbliness over that stuff as I don't like my job. Of course. It's just eight or nine hours. I'm in so entrenched in that mindset that I need to have, I need to not do that yeah, yeah. when I'm not there. Yeah. I need to absolutely not do that. And, you know, I've, my job is fascinating and I don't know anyone out there who has a similar job experience I do. Mm -hmm. That person just doesn't exist. Like yeah. maybe there's 10 of us in the whole world. But I need to not be in that world when I'm not there. All right. So let's go with this. Let's go with self-care now. That's a good segue, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a perfect yeah, there segue. There we go. So something that when you're speaking with Monica beforehand, and for anyone who doesn't know, like, so Monica um, produces the podcast and does like all our pre-interviews, and it's like Monica will like kind of feed me the like here's some of the stuff that you know Adam would want to talk about, and, mm -hmm. and you know like here's some of the things that came up in our conversation, and I wasn't sure if you're going to go there, and I was super psyched that you did. You talked a lot about mental health and how to take care how to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. So this is a thing that I, I love when people are willing to talk about because like, I don't care if you are um, working at a mid-level mid manager in medical device sales, or if you are a CEO in insurance, or if you're a frontline worker in like, um, you know, social services, everyone at all different levels, when it's no one else is listening, talks to me about mental health stuff and how to take care of themselves and their struggles. And mental health concerns and, and challenges aren't a thing for a certain group of people. Some, a certain group of people or a part of our population could feel it more profoundly and could have to do with more severe mental health stuff or more, more because they're marginalized or both. But I'd say everyone, especially in today's society, has some kind of concerns around this. So wherever you want to go with this, I'd love to hear about. And me of six years ago probably wouldn't talk about it. Me of six years ago probably wouldn't even know as much about my own mental health as I do now. Um, I come from a long line of warriors and, you know, people who have struggled with it. And, you know, a lot of my teenagerhood was spent not being okay with myself. Mm -hmm. And... You know, maybe that was one reason I gravitated towards this counterculture was because I, it wasn't just that I didn't feel right in the, in the quote unquote normal world. It was because I felt like I didn't belong there. Like I was not supposed to be there. Like that was completely something else. That's hard to deal with, especially when you don't have the tools to deal with it. And most people don't, most people don't have those tools. So, and I fought it for years and I went to some really, really dark places. Like I've, I've really struggled, like even in the time we've known each other and I haven't really talked about it with a lot of people, not with my family, not with my closest friends, not anybody. And, you know, there've been times that I've been sitting in my chair at desk and sitting, see, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to get nervous talking about it because other than in a one-on-one -on -one setting with either my wife or a therapist, I've never really talked about it. So this is my first time like really, really opening up. But I've been in my chair at work and it literally felt like someone had their hands on my shoulders 
and didn't let me, wasn't letting me get up because I felt so like heavily burdened by my own thoughts. And a lot of his anxiety, which I still struggle with. I mean, look at my fingernails, dude. I bite the shit out of them still. I'm 42 and I chew my nails. But I started really trying to get on a better path when I met my wife. And for the first time ever, I realized that this wasn't just about me, but it was about someone else. And I've met someone who I want to present my best self to. So there were a few hiccups in our relationship that we sat down and she's a behavior analyst. So, you know, she helped me realize that I couldn't do this by myself. And I started seeking out the tools necessary for self-betterment. That was getting therapy, taking medications, which I was always against. Like I was always like, you know what? I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to do it on my own. But guess what? Sometimes you can't. So I started trying to see what the right medications were, the right, you know, doctors were. And I'm never going to be you know, 100% always not experiencing something, Mm -hmm. but I have the tools. And I still have times that are tough of depression and anxiety. But the difference now is I know that I have an incredible support system and I know that I can deal with it. Yeah, man. And what you just hit on, it's not the, um, so I talk a, a lot about the idea like, not worrying about extinction. So when people are like, hey, you know, I feel depression or I feel anxiety or I have substance abuse concerns or any of these things, how do I stop it? The thing that I was trying to tell people is like, don't worry about extinction, something going away. Mm-hmm. Focus on building up tools and having a support system. And in the tools, there's, there's an idea that I was trying to put forward. It's like, it's not about something stopping, it's about reduction in frequency, duration, and impact. Mm-hmm. So when something happens, it's uncomfortable and sucks. Like, so for someone with addiction stuff, like maybe they relapse. Yeah. Relapse is a normal part of recovery. It's like a totally normal part of recovery. And that could be for alcohol, drug, sex addiction. It could be for mental health concerns, whatever it is. What we're always looking for is just a reduction in frequency. So whatever that thing is, it happens just less often. But then you also look for a reduction in duration that when it happens, which it inevitably will, you just make that thing happen for a shorter amount of time. But the last is a reduction in impact that if someone's having like a mental health episode or um, they're relapsing or whatever it is that they're experiencing, that the impact is less. So let's say someone living with depression and anxiety that you know you're experiencing depression and anxiety or anxiety, you're applying the tools to it, you're talking to your support system, and that means the impact that it's gonna have in your life is gonna be less. It doesn't mean it's not gonna suck and be uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but maybe you don't go into isolation yeah. or maybe you don't become suicidal or maybe these things that you can be like, okay, here's what's going on, everyone. Here's the tools I'm applying, just so you know. And then you make that impact less. And I don't know if I ever, I don't wanna not feel that. Right. I want it to be part of my human experience. Mm-hmm. I just don't want it to ruin anything. Yeah. And every, every, you know, spell of what whatever's going on 
I think now I start to view as, you know, this sucked, but I got through it. Yeah. And I came out the other side. Yeah. How did I do that? Yeah. And really, you know, talk about analytics, like self-analytics. Like that's, that's huge. Realizing that I want to give the best version of myself to my wife as possible. Like that's huge. And now I'm at my job with so much more responsibilities. I want to be so dependable. And there's been times where I've been, and I still have moments where I'll lash out and get really angry. I think almost, you know, that's pretty natural. But I still, as a person who's been there as long as I have with this much experience and this many responsibilities, I want to be dependable. And part of that is taking care of myself to where I can make myself dependable. And dependable to my family, dependable to my coworkers dependable to anyone around me and part of that is the self-care and you know I think that is is really kind of where I realized that my wife was someone that I wanted to be partnered with like forever this might sound selfish but where I was like okay I need to be better for this person Mm -hmm. it was no longer just about me Mm -hmm. at all you know, if someone like looking at it as like, oh, I'm only doing this for me. It's like, that's great. That's great. But you're doing it for so much more than just you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, finally having a conversation with my mother where we both talked about it. And she talked about things that I didn't know that she dealt with as well as other members of my family. And my mom and my dad are both such solid people. And know that that members of my family have dealt with it, but they were still able to give me such an incredible life. Is so uplifting that they have the same thing that I have, yet they were able to deal with it in a way that made me and my sister and people around us so happy and so comfortable. It can be done especially in that generation where mental health wasn't really talked about openly. No. Uh, it's a huge thing. So as we're heading towards the kind of the end of our interview, I do want to take that mental health piece and that self-care piece and put it into the workplace. So I know um, you'd mentioned uh, to Monica that uh, when COVID kicked in, first sales mm-hmm. constructed, but then they exploded. <sighs> and yeah. it caused, because it caused you have to work super intense hours which impacted your mental health and you were a little understaffed at the time. So you were working constantly using that as a backdrop, like any thoughts on like, how do we make, how do we make, and I'm not asking you to have the answer, but it's like, what are your thoughts on like, how do we make mental health a viable conversation in the workplace where it's like, Hey, okay, there's going to be times where our work pace is going to be totally insane. And we're going to have to manage that both having the right staff, but also like, how do we help people take care of themselves? Like, how do we make mental health a conversation where there's going to be ebbs and flows of, bu- of business? We have to be able to talk about it and be practical about it like anything else in the business. I think a lot of it, and we get to those points where, you know, we have so many orders that we feel like it's a constant, constantly being just buried in work. And while you can view that and say, that's great, that's job security, that's all money coming in. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if that's the 
the outcome is that we're you know going to be more successful as a business somebody's doing the work somebody's doing the labor someone's going to get burned out right and i've always felt like slowing down maybe taking 20 minutes and having a conversation with someone just like you know this sucks we'll get through it or i'm going to go and help someone for an hour alleviate some of their stress and then one of the best things to do is talk about something that's not work related for 20 minutes you know there's people there that we can talk about tv for 20 minutes just get your brain somewhere else for a little bit or uh one of the guys 80s baseball like you know we'll talk about the you know 86 mets or something and we'll feel good and you know i i really put a lot of value in those interpersonal relationships and making it seem like i care because mm-hmm. i do mm-hmm. i really do and a lot of that boils down to what i want someone to f- do that for me if i was feeling overworked or anything like that and let's talk about mental health at work like absolutely and i'm totally okay sharing my experiences with other people it's it's important cuz you know i don't think anybody likes working for someone who's completely aloof and unapproachable and doesn't seem like a human being i'm a human i've dealt with a lot of what other people have dealt with you know i still have enjoyed a lot of you know privileges and and a, a good upbringing but i i've had my own mental adversity and i want to share share that experience with people you know uh, yeah man and i like thanks for being vulnerable and like being willing to talk about it like you know just from my own personal experience with you and us is talking about this like you know in around i think it was like 2016 i was going through like a nightmare scenario in my life and it was like 2016 17 and kind of tucking into 18 i was just not myself tons of anxiety and i've always been a person who's got a lot of anxiety about about like i grew up in a very like chaotic situation so i'm very like hyper focused mm-hmm. on my connection to people and my relationships it's made me um i have a what's called like an in, insecure attachment style and like relationships uh, just in my relationship with life basically and i've really worked a lot about like calming down yeah. and 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 having different types of relationships but i went through this very difficult period and it made me it hit me right in my weak spot of like how i view myself in the world and who my connection like who i'm connected to or do people really care about me like do i have value in this world and i remember just feeling like i was drowning every single day but also trying to keep on and, yeah. and and live so you and i were texting about this record um this band that i'd played in and um like kind of we were talking about some stuff and i cut off the conversation with you quickly as like hey, i have to stop talking about this because i'm getting really anxious right now just the discussion and it was such an interesting thing for me to experience like you were like i didn't know the side of you were like hey if you're feeling anxious give me a call anytime. I've lived mm-hmm. with anxiety. I know what it's like. I'm totally open to talk about it. And you might not remember this, but I remember be sitting in my car and like crying, like getting tears in my eyes because it's like it was a reminder that like someone that I know and I've known for so long, but we don't have this deep connection was like, "Oh, I'm willing to talk to you about this." And it made me feel like, "Oh, I'm not this total freak who's alone in the world. Like there's someone else who's willing to talk about it." And I I wanted I I said thank you earlier, but I just wanted you know like how much that meant to me in that moment um, i'm 
You're more than welcome, but it's almost, I don't want to say it's like something that I expect of people, but you know, like let's, let's look out for each other. And especially, you know, like I feel like a lot of people when you're in the punk and hardcore world for as long as you do, like there's, you might be there because you still have these feelings of alienation and you might need that person to talk to more than anyone else. So I'm going to look out for you also because we might have that in common, the fact that we still might feel alienated from whatever world and we need that. Like, yeah, we, we need to stick together. You know, that's so cliche, but you know, like looking out for each other is so important. And I do put on that face of, you know, I'm fine, everything's fine. And I'm this, you know, kind of nothing gets to me kind of thing. But, uh, you know, I, I, I play hockey with these guys every once or oh, shit, three times a week now. But, you know, they don't know that me. So, and we don't really hang out outside the locker room. And the one time we do, you know, they'll notice I'm not drinking or something. And they'll, you know, you don't drink? You know, like, no. And then you kind of get into it. Like, yeah, I, when I was in high school, I realized that I had a problem. And it kind of was this byproduct of having anxiety and depression. I can't control myself in a lot of things. And then it kind of unravels. And people say, like, I had no idea. Like, I remember that very vividly. One of the guys being like, really? Like, you're introverted and shy? Because in the locker room, like, I'm giving it to these guys like anyone else. Like, it's it's fair game in there. Like, everyone's getting getting ragged on. Like, and they're just like, you know, we had no idea that you were actually like that. You felt like this weird disconnect from the real world. Like, yeah, man. Yeah, you just didn't really get to know me that well. So... Yeah, and this is the first time I've really openly talked about, it, especially like in a forum like this. My social media, I wouldn't dare say anything about this kind of stuff. Like, to me, like that kind of world is not where I want to put that version of me out there. I'm not saying anything wrong with people who do, but I usually don't feel comfortable talking about it in public. Well, I'm not going to tell you guys to edit any of that shit out either. You guys can go with it. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Yeah. All right, so we're closing off. I'm going to ask you three questions. Oh, They're geez. going to get more difficult as we go along. Yeah, not no, difficult. you're ready. You're ready. Okay. Um, but before we do that, anything that you want to say as we're closing off? Thanks for giving me the opportunity because uh, the last few years have been spent trying to avoid situations like this as much as possible where I'm out and about and talking to people. Other than you know, going to Sound and Fury and like, I haven't even been inside at a show since the pandemic. Like even shows I've booked, I've either just stood outside or not gone in or stayed at home, just paid the band's PayPal out of my phone. So this is the one of the first times I've really like gone and sat down and traveled to like hang out with someone. So thank you for giving me that excuse and drive like hey you got to do this man like you can't just sit at home and practice piano and hang out with your dog like you got to go do something mm -hmm. time short go do something experience things so uh yeah so that, that's that's awesome that i got a chance to do this and a lot of the things i've said i think i've kept inside for a long time since i don't really talk about my job that much outside of work mm -hmm. so a lot of it doesn't get said so a lot of this is like things that 
I think it's been good to get out. All right, you ready to go? Yeah. Okay. What's one thing that you've learned about yourself through doing your job mm -hmm. that you were surprised by and you really like? And what's one thing you learned about yourself through doing your job that you were surprised by that you didn't like and you've had to work oh, on? Oh, this is easy. Right? Number one, work ethic. Uh -huh. Like realizing that, you know, I have the ability to do all these things. Like, if you would have told 18 year old me that I would put out records on Revelation Records when I was literally mail ordering from the company, I would have been like, that's absolute insanity. And I did it. Mm -hmm. And that's incredible. Mm -hmm. Like even if I had only done that one record, that Rival Mob record, mm -hmm. and that was the only thing I ever did, I would look back and just be like, that is fantasy world, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> wow, like you just did this. Like. Yeah. Dealing with the turning point, like this legendary band, late 80s. I love them. You love them. One of my faves of all time. And huge shout out to Turning Point. One of the most influential bands in my entire life. Yeah. And, and wonderful people. Yeah. The fact that I got to get the Turning Point catalog for Revelation Records. Oh my God. I cannot believe that I did that. I still look at the record and I'm like... This was because of me, dude. Mm -hmm. Like, can you believe that? Or like a band like Felt Low. Mm -hmm. I made thousands of people all over the world hear this band that never would have heard them otherwise because I liked them and because I say so. Yeah. Like, screw you guys, you're listening to this. <laughs> Whether you like it or not, I don't give a shit. So work ethic is something you work, like. Yeah. And but what's but, something you don't you you found that you didn't love and you've worked on since? That I am a huge creature of habit. And I get in ruts and every day is very similar in like what time I do, I do certain things and just, you know, being resistant to, you know, self-help, being resistant to working outside of Rev. You know, it's very, it's very easy to stay in a certain place because that's what you're used to. I don't know anything since I was 21 years old other than this company and this world. When I actually think about a life outside of it, it scares me to death because I don't know anything like that. Like my entire adult life is this. Do I have what it takes? Like when I, when I worked, when I did the internship with the county, like none of those people, I couldn't relate to any of them. Like they don't listen to, they don't have no idea who like these bands are like if I'd go to a show and I remember being in high school and like you go to school and I still had like faded X's on my hands like none of these people know like none of the people that internship know so if I leave Rev and go work somewhere else what am I going to feel like am I going to feel like a complete outsider again is it going to be back to how I felt when I was a teenager when I had no way to relate to other people that scares me but that fear is something that I recognize that I don't want to have. I don't want to be afraid of the life outside what I have now. Like back to the like the self analysis. I want to be able to sit down and say, look, this life isn't working for me anymore. I need to do this. And I don't want to be afraid of change. And I don't want to be afraid of failure or thinking I made the wrong decision. I got to break that. All right. Second question. When does Rev end? Does it end when Jordan retires? Does it end when you retire? 
when does something like legacy like rev and also current like rev because he's putting out records now mm -hmm. does it have an ending or will it always go on and on it'll only have an ending if someone doesn't step up and carry it if I hadn't stepped up and done what I did, would it have kept going? I don't know. You know, as those those legacy bands will sell forever, but Jordan could be like, you know what, I'm, you know, he's a father. He has a degree in computer science. And if he wanted to go do that and focus on that, then he could sell the label and all the publishing rights and walk away and that'd be that. But, and as, and as I look at my life and if I want to step away, if there was someone to pick up where I left off, Rev would keep going and Rev would be in good hands. Mm -hmm. So it would have to have the right person. Mm -hmm. And the right person is probably really hard to find. Mm -hmm. You know, I could be getting paid more elsewhere, mm -hmm. but man, I love what I do day to day. Oh my God. Selling records to record stores and being in contact with labels like Convulse and Triple B and all these labels were like, not only do I have good business relationships, but I dig a lot of the stuff they put out. Like I have a connection to my work that is extremely hard to find. Yeah. So will Rev ever go away? I mean, everything's going to go away at some point. Mm -hmm. The sun will burn out. Mm -hmm. Even then, like some alien might hear, you know, we're not in this alone and be like, damn, <laughs> this, is, this is some shit right here. You know? <laughs> so it's like some someone will be buying an adolescence record and someone will need to sell that record to some record store yeah um all right last question for you man so we've talked a lot about the business we've talked a lot about you and i'm going to say something and I, I say it with love and i said it to you beforehand Shit. you know you're you're a character yourself and i would say like half half if not 70 percent of my interactions with you are like purse short to the point not necessarily like real sweetly said and i love that about you and there's been times where i've been like damn adam's like harsh i'd say reputationally my experience not reputation i say my experience with you has been like curmudgeonly ever mm -hmm. since you were quite young like you were like an old man when you were very young mm -hmm. but also like the in like your core you were just like a decent lovely person and you present as a curmudgeon i know <laughs> so question for yeah. question for you okay is that something that you're working on uh -uh. okay is that something that people around you should navigate and think about or is that something people around you should it should ignore ignore it okay tell me why. I, I am more than happy to talk to anybody about anything at any time Getting getting past that getting past that first wall is hard. Um, Have you always been like that? I think so because you know I think it also comes down to some of my mental health things. Is whenever I talk to someone, I feel like I'm bothering them. Right, right. Maybe that's because like we get a lot of people who like to talk your ear off about Rev. Like if I go to a show or. Someone, some random like Rev fan will get my email or something or, you know, follow me on Instagram and then start dropping in my DMs all these questions. Like, I sometimes I don't really want to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. If it's someone I know, I will give you the time of day forever. Mm -hmm. 
And when I talk to people, you know, and I think it's why I don't, I don't have a lot of close friends. Mm -hmm. I have my wife, I have my parents, mm -hmm. I have one or two close friends. Mm -hmm. I have a dog, I tell everything. Mm -hmm. But like, I always feel like I'm inconveniencing people mm -hmm. or I'm boring people mm -hmm. or I'm burdening people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I don't want to get that deep into conversation sometimes because I feel like I am you know, inconveniencing someone. Yeah. And so some of it comes away from that. Some of it is also the fact that I'm so busy at work. Like if you text me between 7 a.m. and 4 p.m., I got three computers out, um, looking at spreadsheets while I'm, you know, on some company's business business website and doing all kinds of shit. If I can answer that question with a yes or no, I'm gonna do it and I'm gonna move on and that's it. <laughs> okay. I'll give you your answer and, and you know, that's it. But it's, I'm not trying to, to blow anyone off or uh -huh. I'm not trying to do any of that. And as I said, if, if you texted me at night and you uh -huh. wanted to talk about anything, if you want to talk about hockey, uh -huh. you want to talk about food, you want to talk about anything about the geography of Calgary mm -hmm. and, or any place in the world, because I know way too much about that shit. Like that kind of stuff, like, yeah, I'm down. Like, let's, let's go. All right. The reason I'm asking you this oh. is I have chosen to ignore your, the curmudgeonly side of you because I'm like, oh, I kind of love that. It's like, you know, when you just like, there's something about someone you're like, I love that because that's just like their personality, who they are. And, and the thing that I've, when I'm texting with you or I'm asking you stuff, it's like, I know I'm not, I know I'm not bothering them. Mm -hmm. I know he's probably busy and I kind of love this back and forth. Like there's been times where I've been like, ah, and other times I laugh about it. Yeah. The reason I'm asking about it, and this is something I, I hope people can pull from it, is like people aren't perfect. People are who they're going to be. And one of the coolest things that you can do in a professional and um, personal setting is as long as someone's behavior isn't like terrible or egregious or do something like awful, is just meet people where they're at and just like, if you're, if you're interacting with someone because you really like them or you like what they're about or you like what they're doing, you're interested, meet people where they're at and like just accept them for who they are. And you're one of those dudes that's like you're so unapolog unapologetically who you are, but not in a shitty way. You're just who you are. And I've just always appreciated that about you. Wow. That's heavy. But... You know, I'm a, I, I don't like bullshit. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> you know, like, I don't want to, I, I don't want to be looking at my phone and having conversations. If I'm looking at my phone on my computer, I'm doing crossword puzzles mm -hmm. and, you know, I don't need to always interact with people all the time. I hope you take it as a huge compliment when I say that to you. Yeah, it, I do. It's coming from that space. I, I do. And, you know, I've, talking about the whole mental health thing, it's, been a little bit of something I've become more aware of. And I became really aware of it the other day when a record store asked me about something and my reply was, I don't care. And then I looked at the text and was like, wow, that came across really cold. Mm -hmm. And I recognize that, mm -hmm. you know, and it wasn't like I was saying, I don't care. It was like, no, dude, I don't care if that's what, like, let's do this. Yeah. I should have said, sure. Okay. Like, I don't care. Is like, oh man, like this guy's, you know, blow me off. Yeah. And, and I actually caught that. And that doesn't happen very often where I, where I catch how short I'm being with people. Yeah. But, I, but I did. Yeah. And I, I actually recognized it. And I'm, I'm sorry, Chris. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right, man. So this has been a super cool conversation. For I me. hope so. I loved it, man. Anything you want to say before we close off? I mean, thanks for doing this and thanks for giving me the opportunity to to talk and open up. Yeah. And, you know, I apologize if I've been staring at that picture book of Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> I might steal it. No joke. It's, it's a hotel, man. That thing's, yeah, you, you guys get bill for it. But man, that's like, oof. That thing looks awesome, doesn't it? <laughs> if there was an atlas there, you'd be screwed because I would have just been looking at the atlas the whole time. We, we put them away before you came. Thank you. You're, absolutely. Yeah. All right, man. So anything before we close off? No. Edit it in if I end up uh, saying anything. But, okay. You know, thanks for, thanks for having me. You bet. And everybody check out the new Big Laugh record yeah. that just came out. Now, this is going to come out long after this came out, but check out the new Big Laugh record. And did Planet on a Change just come out too? It came out the same day. So check out both records uh, and then check out Rev for sure. Great label. And we'll put all the info uh, in the bio. Check out Punitive Damage. Check out Punitive Let's Damage. Let's do it. Let's do it. They're sick. Check out Change. Thank you. Thank you. Check um, out In Control. Oh, dude. In Control and Retaliate. Retaliate? Are so sick. I wasn't in Retaliate though. No, but Retaliate but yeah, is sick. yeah. All right, that's it, everyone. Uh, I'll see you in the outro. And Mike, drop the beat. I hope everyone enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, again, like I said at the very beginning of this uh, podcast, and you probably heard it throughout the conversation, I've known Adam forever. And it's funny knowing someone, you know, just casually at first and then building up a relationship and then seeing them have like their professional career. Because, like, Kind of, I know him as meeting him as when he was a teenager, but also predominantly now I know him as an adult. Watching the person that he's become and he continues to develop into, it's just such an honor to be able to see that because he's just a great guy and he has so much to add uh, and so much to offer to people. So Adam, again, thank you so much for being a part of this and for everything you shared. For everyone out there, you know, your path professionally might be super clear. You know exactly what you're gonna do and how you're gonna do it. Or it might be something where you take a lot of different, um, you know, different paths and the road is twisting and turning. But the whole goal here is whatever you're going to do, make sure you do it as you from the heart. Don't be afraid to take risks and make sure that you bring all of you into your job. So that's it for today. My name is Aram Arslanian and this is One Step Beyond. Let's